Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 and continuing to verse 19. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagiris, that is the son, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father, as we now consider this word, having had it read in your presence, we would ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to come, that the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a handful of years ago. Now I was sitting in a general assembly, which is the national gathering of the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination that we as a local church are members of. I was sitting in that assembly and listening to one of those I don't know, stunning reports that were being given on the floor of General Assembly and may have been thumbing uh, through my docket, uh, maybe at a place that was not currently of the report, simply catching up on some reading and I happened upon some statistics, statistics of uh, churches that are being planted in um, our denomination, churches that have dissolved. Uh, within our denomination, ministers who have been uh, ordained within our uh, church, and then also ministers who have uh, demitted from the ministry, that is, stepped away from their ordination vows and commitments. And I was just perusing some of the, the names and looking at the statistics, and I saw a name that I recognized under the men of the ministry who had demitted, and I had no idea of this particular uh, man's leaving of the ministry. And I was sitting by uh, a friend of mine, and I 
I pointed to his name because I knew that my friend as well uh, knew this, this young man who had not been in ministry maybe five years or so and now was stepping away from the pastorate. And I asked him, I said, do you know the story of what happened here? And very simply he just said, the pressure got to him. The pressure got to him. That was the word that he used. In the passage before us in Mark chapter 3, we have, as it were, the pressure getting to Jesus. The pressure coming from all kinds of directions, from all kinds of, 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 of spheres, all, all kinds of people groups that he's ministering to and that he's serving. And we see him in the midst of this overwhelming um, season of pressure in the ministry of preaching the gospel and healing and in casting out uh, demons and walking through all kinds of trials, we see him do exactly what one needs to do in the midst of what we might say is the risk of burnout, in the, mi- in the midst of pressures in ministry. He teaches us what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. What it means to carry our burdens to the Lord and to cast our cares upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. The Lord Jesus teaches us about how to deal with the pressures in ministry. Now, it's really important for our day and time, because if Gallup and Barna are correct, um, it takes about 10 years for a pastor to fall out of ministry. About 50%, if the numbers can be trusted, don't stay in ministry longer than 10 years. And if the numbers are correct, during the season of COVID-19 and uh, the raging pandemic and churches that are having to go live stream and many churches are finding their numbers dwindle and their impact mitigated, one in five of churches who were in the midst of being planted or churches that were fledgling and struggling will actually close their doors due to the pressures of the season in which we find ourselves. How do we deal with the pressures in ministry? Well, Jesus teaches us about how He dealt, biblically speaking, with the pressures in ministry in His own day and time with a kind of pressure that I don't think is even worthy to be compared with the pressure of an ordinary pastor or church or ministry. Uh, Pressures of advancing and establishing the gospel and the kingdom of God for the salvation of the world. That's Jesus' mission. And yet pressures are coming from all circles. As we look at this text together, I want you to see the particular pressures that Jesus himself faced And I want you to see that those pressures are true even in the day and time in which we find ourselves here today. I want you to see those pressures in ministry. But I want you to also see the partners that he raises up in ministry. Which is part of the answer of dealing with the pressures in ministry. The partners that he raises up in ministry. And I want you to see that he relies on the single power that is available to us for ministry. I want you to see the pressures in ministry, the partners in ministry, and I want you to see the power for ministry as we consider this text together. I want to start with these pressures of of ministry, and I want you to see three different pressures that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced in the establishing of the kingdom of God and in the advancing of the gospel. 
And I want to look at it in light of the people groups that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually engaging. Or the, we might say the constituents that are showing up in and around the gatherings and the followership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, I want to have your Bibles open to just peer back into the end of chapter 3 and maybe all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2, we have just closed a section in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus has had one run-in with the religious establishment after another. A series of five different stories where they didn't like what Jesus said, they didn't like what Jesus was doing, they didn't like how he conducted himself. And by the end of those five stories, we are told that the Pharisees go out with the Herodians, a powerful political group of the day, in order to plot how they might destroy Jesus. I would like to suggest that these religious establishment, the self-righteous attacks of the religious establishment, is one of the key pressures that Jesus faces in ministry. Those who are always lurking along the corners of the crowds and of the healings, listening like the religious lint pickers that they were, to try to find a way to catch Jesus into saying something and in doing something that would be not kosher, wouldn't be theologically correct, wouldn't be in keeping with the oral tradition or the laws of the Pharisees. Jesus is feeling, no doubt, the pressures of self-righteous attacks of the religious. Now we know in our own day and time what it's like to be around such a person, don't we? That, that really too-good-for-church kind of Christian. You know who I am talking about. The person where you always feel like you're on the stand when you're in a conversation with them. They're drilling you. Do you believe like I believe? Do you do what I do? Are you behaving the way you ought to behave? And the kind of sort of suffocating and stifling sense of not enough air when you're around them to realize that they're always, in some sense, looking to bolster their own personal identity and to strengthen the fact of their insecurity by showing you in some way, shape, or form that they're just a little bit better than you are. These religious attacks that have been coming like a drumbeat toward the Lord Jesus Christ through the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious establishment of the day are wearying. These pressures are striving now at this moment in his ministry to destroy him. That's their plot. But I want you to see in the passage before us an additional pressure, a pressure that we've seen throughout our teaching of the Gospel of Mark already, and it's the pressures of the selfish demands of the crowd. If we have the self-righteous criticisms and attacks of the righteous, we have the selfish demands of the crowds. Two times Mark mentions there in verses 7 and 8 that this was a great crowd that followed Jesus. His popularity was sky high. His, his approval ratings were out the roof. His word of news regarding his, his healings, regarding his miracles, regarding all that he had done, had literally spread to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. You see, Mark is actually giving us a description, a geographical map, when he mentions all of these places there in verse 7. Galilee, a section in the northern part of Israel. Judea and Jerusalem, the southern part of Israel. 
Idumea and the area beyond the Jordan River, mostly the eastern part of Judea, and Tyre and Sidon, a northern western part of Galilee, mostly filled with Gentiles. So Mark is actually telling us, Mark who's not known for many details, he wants you to know that literally from the north, south, east, and west, people are streaming to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is because they're deeply committed to Him. They have heard the gospel. They are, they are lovers of Christ. They are willing to be spent for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to say that were true. The fact is, this needy mob is after Jesus, not for Jesus but for what Jesus can do for them. They are after a healing for themselves more than they are after a service and a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark actually tells us the neediness of these people is more like a mob than it is a crowd. This is the only section in the Gospel of Mark where he adds an element that Luke doesn't add in the parallel retelling where he actually says Jesus asked the fishermen, his disciples, to have a getaway boat nearby in case things got out of hand. He says, have the boat nearby because these people are pressing on me and they're seeking to touch me and my feet are already wet. My sandals are ruined. We're going to jump into this boat and get away because he's about to be a strong word in the Greek, crushed by the crowd. In their desperate attempt to be able to get from Jesus the healing that they want, they have actually become a threat to the very physical safety of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that a swelling crowd is not necessarily an indication of deep devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over in the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus would do miracles, the crowd would gather around Him, and then He would say some piercing word, and half of them would say something like, this is a hard word, I don't think we can stick around any longer. We were actually here for the food and for the healings. Now that the show is over, I think we'll go our merry way. When he fed the 5,000, for instance, and that crowd continued to follow him in John chapter 6, he then turns to them and says, I know you're not here for me. You're here because you got your fill of the loaves. Which is why he says earlier in the Gospel of John, looking out at the crowd, that he didn't entrust himself to the crowd because he knew what was in them. You see, the crowd was as much as a distraction and a threat to the work of ministry. It was as much a pressure uh, to keep from the real work of the ministry as it was a help. There are always those, isn't there, who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, not for Christ, but for themselves. Have come with themselves in view and are willing, once they have gotten from Christ, to go along their merry way. Because their commitment was never to Him. Their commitment was to Him only so far as He would give them what it is they were after. These are pressures in ministry. The pressures of a crowd thronging with needs. The criticisms and attack of a self-righteous religious establishment. But thirdly, I want you to see there's a deeper and even more insidious attack and pressure that Jesus feels in the midst of ministry and it's a spiritual warfare. It's the crafty conflicts that are created with the demons. You see, wherever Jesus went, we're told, demons would come out of the woodwork. Whenever one of these poor souls would come up and encounter Jesus, Mark tells us the response was the same. The people fell on the ground and cried out, the Son of God. 
Now the cry of the demons when you hear that, though theologically correct, biblically on target, is not a cry of devotion. It's not a cry of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's rather a feeble attempt to dominate Him, to usurp control of revelation and the path of revelation. It was believed in the first century that to know the name of a demon or to know the name of a spirit was a way to dominate them, to control them, to be able to identify their character, to be able to call them out. By them claiming that he is the Son of God, it's a, it's a movement towards usurping or control, but it's, it's also a manipulative tactic. To get the words out this early in his ministry that you are the Son of God were words that would lead him into conflict, into trouble. You remember the trouble he got in when he just said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they said, wait, 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 wait. No one can forgive sins but God. Well, you can imagine when the title that demons are giving him is the very Son of God, what kind of uproar that would cause at this point in the ministry. The revelation of Jesus' disclosure must come forward incrementally according to the Father's plan. But here the evil ones are jumping the trick. Seeking, as it were, to expose Jesus, to cause trouble, which is why Jesus in the moment doesn't receive their right revelation, but silences them in the presence of the swirling crowd. What we see is Jesus is under tremendous amount of pressure coming from both without, from within, those who hate Him, those who love Him, and the insidious demons who are operating as a spiritual of darkness all around him. It's a reminder, my friends, of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but we against rulers and authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, this is where our battle is. This is where our struggle is. I believe many times in our own Christian lives, we forget that this is a holy war that we're involved in. We're actually surprised when we find our, our minds distracted when we go to open up the Bible. And we find the newspaper very easy to read. Or when we sit to pray, we can't concentrate. Or when we go to do what we know is right and true, but difficult, and we find a million reasons and obstacles for doing it. That more is happening than flesh and blood. That there is a dark world of forces aligned against the kingdom of light and is seeking in every way, shape, and form to stymied its growth. These realities are pressures that Jesus himself faced, pressures that I believe are still very much with us and alive today. Now, if you can look at these pressures and you think to yourself, why I can see why a man in the ministry, as I was speaking of earlier, would demit from the ministry and say the pressure, as it were, got to him. What we find in this passage is that the pressure of the Lord Jesus Christ, he actually gives us a window of wisdom and direction as to how the pressures of ministry are dealt with and how the establishment of the church is key to the advance of the gospel. What do we see next? Not just the pressures in ministry, but we see the partners in ministry. Notice what Jesus does in this text. Mark tells us there in verse 13 that Jesus calls to himself those whom he desired. Those whom he desired. There was a group referred to there in verse 7 as the disciples. These are the people who are committed to Jesus. They're not just simply looking to him to... As a luck charm, as a rabbit's foot, 
to give them what it is that they're after. They're looking to Jesus to commit their life to him, in love for him, willing to be spent for him. These are the disciples that the Lord Jesus is calling unto himself. Those, notice, whom he desired to be with. This beautiful picture of him drawing, as it were, those friends who would become to him the partners in ministry. What's remarkable about this is that he's the Son of God. The demons were right in this passage. He is the authority of his Father that he steps out in and ministers in. And yet, in the midst of that, what do we see Jesus doing? Investing in raising up partners and leaders in ministry. One of the shocking realities of reading through the Gospel of Mark is knowing that Jesus, who is the most powerful individual that's ever walked the face of the earth, fully God and fully man, invests a tremendous portion of his energy and time in 12 men, notice the apostles, to extend the ministry in and through them and have more shoulders on which the ministry can be carried. In fact, he makes the shocking declaration in John chapter 14 that they are going to do even greater works than he. The Lord is going to use them and anoint them for the advance of the kingdom and the establishment of the church. Jesus is teaching us that we are not to do ministry, we are not to do life on our own. In fact, we can't do it on our own. The pressures are too significant. They're too weighty. We need partners in ministry. We need those raised up who will be a part of the body of Christ that will help us walk to do the ministry that God has called us to do. Jesus is showing us here by choosing and appointing these disciples, these apostles, that ministry is one of those things that we do together. It's amazing when the Apostle Paul is speaking of this moment in history, this moment in redemptive history. He does in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says to those believers at Ephesus, You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and the members of God's household. You are built, he says, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. This moment in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is establishing the church. He's actually doing it in a very clear and redemptive way. Where do we see this? Well, by choosing 12 men. I trust as you hear that word 12, those of you who know your Bibles and go back to the Old Testament, some bells go off because there was another key grouping of 12 in the Old Testament. It was the 12 tribes of Israel. Those sons of Jacob who represented God's covenant people, Israel, in the Old Testament. In fact, all the lands that are mentioned here in Mark chapter 3 are those Old Testament lands now being re-inhabited by the people of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. It's probably part of the reason Mark mentions them. But now what is he doing? He's establishing, as it were, a new Israel, a new people of God, full of Jews and full of Gentiles who Paul will call in Galatians chapter 6, the Israel of God. A people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. In fact, when you see that mention of Tyre and Sidon, you should remember the fact that those aren't the Jewish territories. Those are mostly Gentile-occupied territories. We're seeing people from all over come to the Lord Jesus Christ, from north, south, east, and west. This is going to be a global community that the Lord is establishing known as the church. And it's hinted at here as he raises up 12 apostles 
who will be the foundation stones for this new people of God. I want you to ponder this for a second. Not a one of us would be here today if it weren't for the 12 apostles. There would be no church in Middle Tennessee, thousands of miles away from the Middle East, if it were not for the 12 apostles. These men, God had given authority and power to preach and to push back against the kingdom of darkness for the advance of the kingdom of light. We have much to be thankful for when we see Jesus retreat on this mountain and to choose these men from the twelve of the group of disciples and to give to them the authority that is His as the apostles. We stand today, brothers and sisters, on their shoulders. This is the foundation of the church. And what a fascinating group of men this is, these partners in ministry. Now, I know you're, you're expecting, I mean, this is the cream of the crop, right? I mean, this is a cut above all the rest. I mean, these men are clearly going to be the best of the best. Jesus was looking for just a few good men and a few good men he's going to get, these 12 men. We have Peter, for instance, decisive, courageous, charismatic in his communication, often wrong, never unsure the one who becomes the leader among the apostles who sticks his foot in his mouth more than he keeps it out. Andrew, his brother, the exact opposite. Meek, mild, gifted, evangelistically, but one you rarely hear about, more in the background of the work, but always bringing people to Jesus and whose name comes to be known in church history for missions and mission sending. James and John, here are these delightful sons of thunder. Fierce, even at times wild if pushed. Trusting in Jesus, but deeply loved by Christ. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one whom he had trusted his own mother to while he was on the cross. Matthew, that stellar character upheld in the sight of all of the community. You know tax collectors. How much people love them and how they were so delighted in in the first century. No, this probably wealthiest man among the disciples with ill-gotten gain becomes particularly gifted in communication to the Hebrew people. And the Lord blesses his writing of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first of the Gospels ever given. And then I know, I know, I know. You're thinking of, well, Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus. No, you're not. You can't think of them at all. There's no memory of them. We don't have any stories about these men. These are men who labored faithfully with Jesus and their names are obscure. They were completely supporting staff in terms of the unfolding of the gospel and yet essential to the ministry team that Jesus was building. We can't recall hardly any memories from them. It actually gives us an incredible hope, doesn't it? That the partners which Jesus calls in ministry don't have to do with a certain personality type. Certain aptitudes for gifting certain strategic role around the boardroom. No, these are men whom the Lord called ordinary men from the life of His disciples that He would use through His power and authority to accomplish great things through. Think of it in this way. He took those who were foolish and through the power of His gospel He made them wise. He took those who were weak and through the strength of His Spirit, He made them strong. He took men who were not and by God's grace, they established the church of which the gates of hell won't prevail against. That's who these men are. These 12 disciples. 
Now, this actually, I think, should be greatly encouraging to us as a church and really even to our character. Because if we're honest, that's a lot of us, isn't it? I mean, how many of us are going to make it into the history books? How many of us are going to be remembered even two or three generations down the line? Can you think of your great-great-grandmother's name right now? These are the realities that we live in, and yet God is using and advancing His kingdom in the generation in which He has placed us. It's a part of why 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the church as the body of Christ. Some parts public, some parts behind the scenes, some parts covered up, some parts out in the open. Because the Lord is using all in order to build for Him a beautiful temple, a beautiful expression of the partnership that He has with us in the gospel. So if you see this group, it begins to make sense, doesn't it? That if you've got these pressures in ministry that are overwhelming, you're going to need partners in ministry, new shoulders on which to carry the ministry. But it would seem as if you need great men. And these men look like dim-witted fools most of the time as we see the gospel of Mark unfold. And yet that leads us to the very power of ministry. Do you notice the power of ministry in here? We're told that when Jesus calls these disciples, verse 14, He calls them to Himself. To Himself. That they would be with Him. It's a note on their preparation. It's a note on their preparation. How is it that Jesus is going to get these guys ready for the ministry that He has with them? He's going to be with them. He's going to spend time with them. That relationship is the foundation for leadership in ministry. Relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Time with Him is more important than any other preparation and equipping for the work of ministry. Isn't that a remarkable piece that's given to us here? If I may make a bold claim. Eternally speaking... The church is the most important institution on planet earth. Eternally speaking. And the Lord entrusted these 12 men with the responsibility to found it. But all they needed was Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. He is the equipping For the work of ministry. I'm stunned today, especially even as I talk to fellow ministers and by myself falling into the same trap. There's all kinds of leadership books out there, right? So many leadership conferences, leadership gurus. And there's a lot for us preacher types too. A lot of leadership things that we can follow. A lot of methods. There's help in it. There's baby and bathwater in it. But the question that popped into my mind was how tempting it is to study leadership but to fail to spend time with the leader. To fail to spend time with the leader. What Jesus is telling us is that the work for effective ministry is not some principle, it's not some book, it's not some method, it's not some guru. It's being with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to pour Himself into these men so much that He will say in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. For everything that the Father has told me, I have made known to you. This is preparation and ministry, to be with Jesus. Do you want to be an effective discipler of your children, 
Do you want to make an impact on your grandchildren? Would you like to open up your lips to share evangelistically to your neighbor? Would you like to extend mercy ministry via casserole to a good friend? Well, I can assure you as good as that broccoli and cheese is, it can do the work of ministry that prayer and the Lord Jesus Christ and effectiveness of His closeness with you can do. In fact, unless the Lord builds the house, we all labor in vain. With us it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What we're learning here in Mark is that if we're going to be effective in the work of ministry like the apostles were, we're going to have to spend time with Jesus. But the second thing you see gloriously under the power of ministry is in order to bear witness for ministry, we've got to practice the very ministry that Jesus himself practiced. Do you notice what he told them to do? Go and be with me, and then I'm going to send you out. And I'm going to send you out to do the exact things that I'm doing. I'm going to send you out to preach. I'm going to send you out in authority and in power to cast out demons. Now here, this is really important that he doesn't say to them, listen, what we really need is some really creative thought about a new and novel ministry to reach this generation. I need you to go out there and come up with new means by which to figure out how to advance the kingdom. No, Jesus is so wise. His Father is so wise. He knows that we don't have the chops to be able to do that. He knows that He's not only got to give us the power for ministry, He's got to give us the forms and the practice for ministry. He's going to go send them out to do the very ministry that He has called, He Himself has been called to do. The beautiful work of what Jesus is showing to them is that the ordinary means of grace, the regular ministry of the church, of word and sacrament and community and discipleship and discipline, these are the means that the Lord uses to advance His kingdom in each and every generation. As He empowers us and as He gives us the means, we begin to experience increasingly the fruit of a Jesus-saturated and driven ministry. And when you begin to see the power of this ministry coming from Jesus, the practice of this ministry flowing out of the example of Jesus, to engage with partnership in ministry, those whom we need around us, you begin to deal with the pressures of ministry because you know what begins to happen? You begin to feel the light and easy yoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're resting in the power of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of the gospel in Christ to go do the work that you've been called to do, there is a peacefulness in the midst of the pressures. And there is a power for effectiveness that's in the midst of the swirl. Because you realize that you don't bring in the kingdom by your redoubling your efforts. In your efforts, the kingdom is brought in through the gracious gift and the power of God working through you. And so you find what Jesus did that Luke doesn't really even tell us or Mark doesn't really even tell us in this passage. When Jesus goes up on that mountain and chooses his 12 disciples, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6 that he spent all night in prayer. He spent all night in prayer. Jesus needed discernment. Jesus needed strength and wisdom. He's about to make the most important decision in the founding of the church to choose these 12 apostles. He spent all night uh, in prayer, Luke tells us, which tells us that Jesus knows exactly what it is that we need in the work of ministry and displays it with his own dependence upon his heavenly Father. If we're ever going to be effective in ministry, we've got to spend more time on our knees. 
We've got to spend more time on our knees. Because it's there where the battle is really fought. It's there where the war is really won. It's there where the ministry is advanced. You know, just to note in reading through the Gospel of, of Mark this week again and rereading the end part of the Gospel of Mark, it's an unusual ending, and reflecting some on the passage that's before us, I couldn't help but notice the fact that the pressures of this passage do finally get to Jesus. You know, these religious leaders who are attacking him and bringing pressures from him then, well, by the end of this gospel, we're going to see that these religious leaders are who actually orchestrate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find that the partners, as helpful as they are, are actually the undoing of the Lord Jesus Christ. They become the opposite of partnership, especially, you caught that note, didn't you, in the reading today, that one of his apostles is named Judas Iscariot. His betrayer, even the ones who are to be his greatest support in the midst of the pressures of ministry and the attacks from without become the ones who actually turn him over. That the partners in ministry fail, the pressures of ministry finally do get to Jesus. But what's remarkable about the unfolding of the Gospel of Mark is that the power for the ministry of the advance of Jesus' kingdom is never depleted regardless. That even through the failure of his partners and even through the attacks of the outside pressures from a crowd that he never entrusted him to that now cries crucify him. To that moment where he is giving himself up as a sacrifice for his people. It's in that moment where the power of God is being unleashed. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as he in that moment is removing and defanging, we might say, the evil one there on the cross, those powers of darkness, and ultimately hushing all allegations against him in the resurrection and laying low all religion for gospel-centered community life, what will become the real life of the church. In that moment in the cross and resurrection, what looks like weakness, foolishness, what looks like defeat becomes the greatest victory. And it's the reason that we're here together today. It's not because there's a man still in the grave. It's because the grave is empty. That there was victory in the midst of defeat. That we as a people who are perpetually defeated can still hope for victory because we have a Savior who has faced our final enemy and won. And won. You see, when you see that Jesus has paid the ultimate price for ministry... And that He is the ultimate power for our ministry. And that our partnerships are only as good as His closeness to us in ministry. But we realize that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And He's coming back again on a white horse to bring His kingdom to consummation. And there will nothing, that nothing will be able to stay His hand. When those promises are a part of the wind that blows through the sails of the work of ministry... The pressures don't get to you because the pressure Jesus allowed to get to him and there's no performance needed now. The performance was Jesus' performance 
and the satisfaction on the cross. And the power is made available to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the gospel message. He today, by grace, is summoning us into service. Can you hear the listen to the voice of the Savior? Can you hear it? Calling you by name? Assuring you of the promises of the gospel? Granting to you His Spirit? Asking you, what are you afraid of? I have given you all of the riches of the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're yours there at your disposal. In confidence and assurance, in partnership, face the pressures with the power of the cross and find that my way is a way of life. Oh, Father in heaven, we would ask that you would allow the realities of these truths to be lodged more deeply and transformatively in the life of each and every one of us. We would ask that you would give us the peace that compels us unto faithful labors of being spent in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, would you even now begin to awaken slumbering souls? Would you stir us unto life and godliness? And would you make a great name for yourself? Yes, even within this generation. Yes, even with the likes of us. In fact, Lord, if you were to do it with the likes of us, it might just be that more glory would be accrued to your name. For what good comes out of, well, folks like us? Well, nothing. Unless the Spirit of God be upon us. And so, Spirit of God, blow. Blow and give us fresh wind. And renew your people for the work of ministry. For your kingdom's sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.